Hello, and welcome to Cage Club. Two fans, 74 movies, one cage. This is episode 38, The Family Man, from the year 2000, directed by Brett Ratner. I'm Mike Manzi. I'm Joey Lewandowski, and with us today we have a special guest. We have Zach Dazan. Hi. Hello, and welcome to the podcast, Zach. Hi, how are you doing? Good. How are you? Yeah, I feel good. I feel I feel very very welcome. I'm I'm terrified to be on a podcast. I'm worried that I'm going to say something uh, off color and that Twitter's going to get me fired from every job I have. Hopefully, the family men won't uh, arouse those uh, those feelings in me. I should be all right. So here's an important question for you. Mm-hmm. When we were first talking about Cage Club, you had introduced a friend of ours to do a later movie, but then you said you might want to do one yourself. Yeah. And you had a really kind of weird interaction. You looked at the list. You're like. I'm going to watch The Family Man right now, and in two hours, I'll let you know if I want to talk about it. <laughs> so, what made you want to do this movie, and like, what about the movie made you want to talk about it on the podcast? Well, I have an interesting relationship with Nick Cage in that I'm not like you know, Cagerati. I don't really know his stuff very well. I kind of see he just exists in the background of my life as like, he's like a meme sometimes, and he always just, you know, I always see pictures of him with bug eyes, and I think that my main cultural touchstone for Nick Cage is actually at a that was like the first movie I remember seeing that and I was just like that is Nick Cage and it's one of my favorite movies it's fantastic but I, I also just see him in the periphery of my, my social life as this thing to be made fun of so I think I, I, I purposely chose a movie that I thought would be bad I realize now actually I recently not so recently like two, two years ago saw Moonstruck for the first time and so Nick Cage has this, this, this tendency to surprise me because I, I Moonstruck is share in Nick Cage how good could it be it was actually a really great movie but I feel like the family man hit me in the same way it's kind of weird that like the movies the cage club movies that seem to surprise me the most are like the most sort of sappy and romantic and it could happen to you might be my favorite cage club movie that i didn't know anything about like just this rom-com in new york city about a lotto ticket this one like as sort of cheesy and predictable and sort of you know an adaptation of a classic story as like sort of lame as it could be like i loved watching this movie yeah. and i just genuinely enjoyed the movie and it was it was really well made like you could tell that they had thought a lot about every possible plot hole because i have this i was taking notes as i was following it and like pretty much every note that i made like in a negative way in the beginning got addressed by the end of the movie was, i took a lot of just notes in the very beginning i'm like trying to make fun of every line because i i, I don't know i like how this get made and i just want this to be a negative podcast but it's not going to be i don't think it's going to be one of those holy shit it's actually pretty good kind of things it's just a well-crafted film may not be like the thing that i normally look for in a movie but uh it was really well done so this is our second christmas movie (laughs) we had trapped in paradise and mike we have coming up not too far from now we have a christmas carol it's kind of weird that in this stretch of you know middle of october when we're recording (laughs) we're like really into christmas but it's sort of it kind of works like i love watching christmas movies i mean we're sort of approaching the christmas creep season so it kind of sets the tone mm-hmm. mike what did you think of this movie like i don't know i think you said you saw it about like a decade ago yeah did you remember liking it how do you like it in terms of cage club well i mean i'm definitely seeing it with like a new pair of glasses on you know since starting cage club and when i watched this pretty much when it came out on cable you know i was a casual cage fan back then you know i I was more into directors and action and sci-fi, and I, I think this kind of caught my attention because of like the you know science fiction elements to it, the <laughs> alternate reality aspect and such, and which they really as, get it. Yeah, and they do <laughs> they do like surprisingly well for for my tastes. And as I was watching it, I was like, you know, this is more than just sort of a wonderful life 
remade or in reverse. I mean, there's aspects of Scrooge and A Christmas Carol and, you know, lots of other sort of Christmas-themed touches going on here. Coming back to it now, I enjoyed it much more. You know, I liked it then, but now, yeah, I did. I was surprised at how much I was going along with this ride and definitely spotting cage moments that, you know, (laughs) that made me laugh. And, you know, I recognize, you know, sort of some of his techniques from movies past. And really, it really surprised me. And, uh, you know, Joey, we've said before, like, rom-com cage or, you know, dramedy cage, like, has kind of surprised us. It's kind of the best. I don't know, like, you know... (laughs) Zach mentioned Moonstruck. We mentioned It Could Happen to You. Like, I kind of want... I mean, City of Angels is sort of an exception, but, I mean, that's... We talked about that plenty with Jordan. I kind of wish this was all of his movies. Like, (laughs) I almost wish he had McConaughey's career, where he just did a bunch of rom-coms and sort of had the McConaissance. Like, we could have the (laughs) Rickagesance. And I don't really want that, because obviously we love a lot of the movies that he's done, but, like, I would not mind seeing another dozen rom-com Cage movies when he's paired up with these actresses like Taylor Leone in this movie, awesome. who's really good, and one of the best female leads he's worked with since Elizabeth Shue, anyway. And just painfully gorgeous. Oh, my God. Painfully Looking gorgeous. Looking at her is just, it's painful. <laughs> <laughs> you, you could tell why uh, Agent Fox Mulder, David Duchovny, fell in love with her and married her, because she is just beautiful, and she's a great actress. When he's paired with a script that sort of works, that pays off in the end, and he's matched with a woman and a character that is able to sort of give and take with him, it just creates a great piece. Yeah. We discussed in the past, he's not exactly what we would consider, you know, a leading man. His, hmm. He's, you know, people, he's good looking, but, you know, he's not, like, dashing or anything like that. However, he's got that everyman quality also as well in there, and I think the combination of that really helps and <laughs> works with this character he's playing in this movie. Well, yeah, he, he's equally at home playing a, uh, a, a upper crusty guy and a dude wearing a, a t-shirt and what was those, like, Santa pants. Uh, <laughs> he manages them both just well. So the movie's about Cage who plays a man named Jack Campbell, and the movie starts out in a little bit of a flashback, which we haven't really had too many of these, like, brief sort of time jumps. Happen from time to time, but it seems like it's more common in cinema as a whole than we've seen in Cage Club. <laughs> and he's at the airport, definitely a pre-9-11 movie. For, for <laughs> she's multiple hanging reasons. out there with him, yeah. He's about to go to London for a internship, and she's got this job, and they're both excited, and they're sort of like at this exciting point in their lives where their careers are kind of beginning to blossom. And they're so in love, but instead of choosing her, chooses his career, and they break up. And it quick cuts to 2000, to modern day, and he's just laying in bed with, you know, some beautiful woman, not a hooker, but kind of hooker-esque. He's just this bigwig New York City president of this acquisitions company, and his life is, at first, sort of, like, great. Like, almost sort of like Leo DiCaprio in The Wolf of Wall Street, where he's just this money hound who just has everything going for him. He seems happy, like, truly, crazily, cagely happy. He's nice to everyone. He's good in bed. He has everything. He has nothing to. He has nothing to be redeemed. I guess by the end we find out he was maybe uh, living in ignorance, but he was absolutely blissful. There's literally nothing that seems to be amiss with his life, unless you are coming from a family-centric viewpoint. I guess I'm a New Yorker, so I'm cynical. <laughs> I agree. He definitely seemed happy to me, you know, or at least he didn't know 
what he was missing. Yeah, he sort of like existed in this world of wealth that, you know, he aspired to and he deserved and, you know, he worked hard for and he's definitely enjoying it too. And it's kind of refreshing to see this rich guy who isn't a big jerk off, you know what I mean? Like he's nice to his neighbors, he's nice to the doorman, he's nice to everybody. He's nice to the guy who almost murders a couple of poor shopkeepers in front of him. He's so happy and content with his life that we get a little bit of opera cage. Yeah. And considering we were talking about Moonstruck and how much he and Cher love the opera in this, we just have him busting out not the best opera, but like pretty passable opera. And mm-hmm. the first of many scenes in this movie where Cage is just in underwear. What I like about this scene is that it just establishes like his freedom. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, he's got the freedom to walk around in his underwear and blast the music as loud as he wants and flirt with whatever. Old people. Flirt, with that, <laughs> flirt with old people, but it's good setup because, yeah. you know, we're seeing pretty much like what he's going to lose. So, like, they have to set it up fast and quick, and I think they do a good job. What I think they also do a good job with is that he is kind of this, like, Scrooge like character. Like, he goes to work and it's Christmas Eve. And he keeps everybody late until 8 o'clock, and he mandates them to come back the next day at noon. In spite of all that, he's still almost kind of likable. Like, he's the kind of boss that you'd be frustrated with, but, like, he almost has the best intentions. Mm -hmm. Because he doesn't have anything else in his life, he's just fully devoted to his work. And it's not like he's keeping people late because he's mean and, like, an awful boss. He's just really passionate about the things that he has in his life. And so I think that even though he is kind of the Scrooge character they do a good job of setting him up in a way that he's also likable. He fills the same slot as Scrooge, but he's not at all Scrooge. He is the nicest man in the universe. And it's the weirdest thing to see because the second he gets plopped into lower class, he becomes the biggest dickhead. (laughs) Everything he says and does is just class warfare, assholery from the top. It's the strangest thing. It's almost like the money actually did make him happy. Yeah, he has these weird moments with his boss or with the other people at his company, and they sort of like rip on each other about how they're horrible people that only love money and you know (laughs) but it's like they know you know what i'm saying like they are aware they're self-aware of that and i think that's sort of what keeping these characters from being like hateable even to a degree they're aware that they're not doing the best thing necessarily i was calling his boss the ghost of christmas future (laughs) because it's sort of like if cage in 30 or 40 years continues on this path He's going to be enormously wealthy and still loving his work, probably, but also still the same kind of guy who's okay being at the office at 8.30 on Christmas Eve because he has nowhere else to go. Like, not necessarily a bad life, but compared to the other life that he's going to sort of space-time travel to, it's not preferable in terms of what Cage's experience is. Right. I, I, the, the takeaway for me is kind of just like, I guess Kate, to Cage, the, the family life was better, but like... I just saw two different kinds of happy in this movie. Like, he was legitimately, ecstatically happy 
<laughs> maybe he had a lot of coke. I mean, maybe that was that was the Wall Street thing. But like in, uh, it, it, but in the end, he was like quietly happy, which is like a different kind of happy. That was like the main hitching point for me. Was just like he went from one kind of happy to another. It wasn't a real a real growth. It was just kind of like a weird change. Yeah, and it's not to get too far ahead, but at one moment he even says, you know, it's not that it's better. It's just that it's different, right? Right. Like there, there are different experiences that sort of match the same level of emotion for him. Completely different ways of going about it. That's kind of a cool, like non-judgmental way to look at people. Everybody's happiness is different. At the end of the movie. It turns out that Jack's happiness is as the family man, as the titular family man. But he also could have been, if he didn't know that life, was perfectly content with this life of one-night stands and a really successful job and lots of money and lots of freedom. If you don't know any better, like any kind of happiness is valid happiness. True. Yeah, none of it will necessarily change who he is like as a person at his core. You know, he, he's always a good person. He'll always be a good person. But it's just like he has a new idea of what he wants out of life. I like to imagine uh-huh. there's an interesting moment, a, a very existential question that the the child, Annie, asks asks him, so where's my real dad? Where is he? And I'm like, holy crap, where is his real dad? <laughs> and I'm wondering if maybe he was experiencing the rich life at the same time and getting a glimpse of, of the rich guy rich guy <laughs> life. And maybe they actually switched places. Maybe they, if, they, if both sides are equally good but different, maybe they just switch sides. Uh, who knows? I mean, that is sort of a valid question. Where does that guy go? I guess it's, the, it's weird. I mean, who knows? I guess it's that time, time resets at the end, so he doesn't really go anywhere. But then, oh man, there's weeks of lives that just got demolished in a second there. But then what happens like at the end when time resets? Does the guy who is in Rich Cage's life, does he divorce Taylioni and go to a life of freedom? Oh, oh man, man, my head's starting to hurt. <laughs> That's a real depressing <laughs> thought. I know, and I was—I just kept saying, like, Cage is just screwing it up for alternate Cage when he gets back. Like, you better <laughs> right, fix right. this. <laughs> Yeah, it's a good thing. Well, I think that they use the word glimpse was pretty important, and the fact that time reset, the, the, fact, it, it, the fact that it's a glimpse makes it more like a virtual reality simulation. He's not actually supplanting anything. <laughs> he's kind of being dropped into a what-if scenario on a magical level. It's not that he's actually taking anyone's place, but everyone's acting as though he did. It's kind of like Peggy Sue Got Married, right, where Peggy Sue is a teenage self, and she's got this whole world of experiences that doesn't necessarily line up with what her teenage self is. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of like a time travel paradox, because like, when she goes back to modern day, time travel and like space-time travel, like consciousness swap, I think is the term that we agreed on in that episode, mm-hmm. it's all just very strange and confusing, right. and the less you think about it, almost the better. Probably. I always call it Freaky Friday-ing myself. <laughs> The architect of this space-time travel, this consciousness swap, is Don Cheadle, who, as Zach sort of alluded to earlier, Cage stops by like a little bodega to get eggnog, and Don Cheadle comes in kind of stereotypically all thugged up. It's, it's a weird sort of plot. Like He's not holding the convenience store hostage. He just wants to bum off kind of a scam, though maybe not but probably scam lottery ticket. <laughs> He's willing to kill and... a business owner for $238. No, you get out or I call 911. Oh, my God. Check the ticket, stupid. Look at the ticket. I'm going to make, make, make you call God. That's my word. You best check that ticket, fool. Let me see the ticket. Was I talking to you? Maybe I'll buy it from you. You know, make a little business deal. Stupid-ass white boy in $2,000 suit gets capped trying to be a hero. News at 11. That's what you want to see? You want to see cash up in here? You want me to set it, son? 
Do you want to die? Do you want to die? It turns out that this is all some sort of like test, right? It's like a test to test right. like people's character. I think the only thing we need to take from this is that it's like an altercation that needs to be diffused by someone, you know? Whoever need whoever wants to do it, like if the shopkeeper had just believed Don Cheadle, that would have been the end of that. Maybe he would have gotten <laughs> sent to an alternate dimension. But Cage steps in and like takes his you know, takes his spot in a way and it's a little strange how it just escalates really quickly out of nowhere it's just like this racial misunderstanding you know i don't know it's like both guys are bringing these prejudice to the table immediately yeah. and uh cage is the only one who can like see through all that and tries to talk to don Cheadle as like a normal person i guess it's a it's a strange test and it's it's strange to me that don Cheadle's words are you brought this upon yourself which is a yes. phrase Uniquely associated with bad things. It's ominous. Um, he made it sound like a punishment. Why is his finding romantic happiness tied to his diffusing a gunfight? It's a strange test. I feel like it should have just happened. It would, it would have made more sense to me if it just happened in a dream and just like, you treat your employees well and you, you write them a little hard, but you treat them well, you treat everybody well in your life, you know. I think you deserve a second chance on true love. Like that, that almost would have been much more sensical to me. What's interesting about this scene is that this is the second movie again that centers around a lottery ticket. Like, you know, it could happen <laughs> to you and then here in The Family Man, like, they're both the whole central plot of the movie is driven by this ticket. Cage defuses the situation and goes outside with Don Cheadle. Cheadle's like, what do you need? Are you actually trying to save me? <laughs> this is bananas. This man thinks I need to be saved, yo! <laughs> Everybody needs something. Yeah? Well, what do you need, Jack? Me. You just said everybody needs something. I got everything I need. Wow. It must be great being you. I'm not saying that you'd be able to do it without some hard work, some honest hard work, and, and possibly some medicine. <laughs> you know, I'm going to really enjoy this. You just remember that you did this, Jack, okay? You brought this on yourself. It almost feels like Cage knows there's a little bit of magic here, like even before the end of the conversation. Hmm. And Donald Cheadle's like, you know, what do you need? And Cage is like, I don't need anything. And Cheadle says, everybody needs something. Sort of gets Cage thinking because when he was at work, his secretary had told him that this woman, Kate, the one that from the beginning of the movie, Taylioni, had called to leave him a voicemail. It sort of gets him thinking, like, what could life have been had I come back from London or not gone to London at all? I want to actually come back. You, you were mentioning about, you know, we're talking about Don Cheadle as a test giver and like life changer. I, there was that weird moment at the end where that a girl ahead of him in line had this moment with Don Cheadle, like, mm -hmm. she, like he had helped her in the past. I think he was testing her too. Well, so what she did is she bought a soda right. and he said it's 99 cents and she gave him a dollar bill, like a $1 bill, and he gave her back nine and change. She's like, oh, oh out of a 10, all right. Catch that. Oh, okay. And so he was testing her and that's why he's like, all that for nine bucks. Like, you know, this girl's going to be damned to a life of you know thievery oh. and moral corrupt like moral free <laughs> oh because my god she's, instead of being a good person saying like oh, no i gave you a dollar she just willingly takes the nine dollars like she looks at them and it's just like uh, are you like am i going to get away with this and then just walks out and that's why he's so disappointed that he gave cage this other world of happiness because he was a good person in the situation and that girl 
I don't want to know what Don Cheadle is going to do to that girl. Like you know, if she if she likes her life now, she's he's going to send her some weird form of hell. You know, maybe put her in Dino, one of Dino Velvet's movies or something. Oh my gosh. That's that was the whole point of that scene. Oh, at the end. Okay. The th- yeah. So that, that that ties into one of the other things I wrote when I was still in very like negative mode about this movie was that like Don Cheadle's character is he like Loki? Is he like a trickster god? Is he easy out there yeah. just <laughs> fuck with people who are happy? Like <laughs> I was wondering that too. Like I don't know if we ever catch his name. I was calling him Clarence because that's the angel from It's a Wonderful Life. What he does, to me, almost feels like a punishment to Cage, you know? Like, I'm going to show you this amazing world that could have been yours, and then I'm going to just snatch it all back from you at the end. I mean, I still like the movie, and I like the way they pull it off, but I almost wonder if it would have been how it would have been if he was this, you know, family man who resented that life and then was sort of shown not necessarily what if he was never born, but he was sort of thrust into this business world, and at first he loved it, and then you know, he yearned for his old life again. He's like the angel of FOMO is what he is. He's just like, <laughs> look what you could have. But now I'm thinking about the poor cage who saw the rich life and now just spends the rest of his life trying to achieve the rich life, but he doesn't have the privilege and knowledge that rich cage <laughs> has. And he's incapable of making that work. And he just spends the rest of his life sad. Uh, oh, and, he, and the other thing, he mentions the organization. Did you catch that? He says, we at the organization have noticed uh, you or something, yeah. like, something like that. And it's this weird, like, dark city kind of, like, I, I don't know, just like, yeah, we've been noticing, we've been taking notes. I'm like, whoa, I want to know more about the organization. That could be the sequel. Like, I want to see what the bureaucracy <laughs> behind this is. Well, I feel like it's kind of like we saw the organization in City of Angels, just a bunch of Don Cheadles, you know, a bunch of Seth Plates. Angels just watching people intervening when they can or when they have to. So after Don Cheadle and Cage have this interaction, Cage goes home and goes to sleep and then wakes up and suddenly it's Christmas morning and he's in bed with Kate and there's a dog licking his face (laughs) and kids running in and he is freaking out. Like we have kind of like a classic Hmm. Cage out of water, Cage freak out here (laughs) and it's so much to take in. Like if you're expecting to wake up to peace and quiet and then there's a wife and a dog and kids and multiple like people coming over with gifts and with food. It's like sensory overload. Mm-hmm. He's like freaking out and saying like, where is my Ferrari? And I was like, oh no, like, are we going to get a red sports car? But it was just a gray sports car with a red interior, so it's close, but no cigar. <laughs> it's sensory overload for Kate, and he doesn't know how to process not only the body switch, but just like all the things he's being forced to deal with. He's used to waking up to the finest, quietest Bach overture. He's not used to being woken by that. This is like awesome. (laughs) You know, like I love this. This is like classic cage is exactly Mm. what I was thinking. I was like, sweet. Like he's stretching here. You know, he's, I gotta, I gotta just mention like Brett Ratner directed this. Like I will never call him a hack again because (laughs) like he did a really great job here of creating these two distinct worlds you know between like the rich lonely corporate sector and then like the family life here you know and it's just like i believe cage when he wakes up and he's losing his mind and he's you know he gets in his car and he drives to his apartment in the city and he goes to his office and no one recognizes him and it's it's just great tony thank god sorry pal enter just for residents and guests only what (laughs) what are you talking about Jack Campbell, penthouse seat. What's the matter with you? Uh-huh. Mrs. Peterson, I think there's something wrong with our man Tony here. Who is this man? Oh, come on. What is going on with you two this morning? Is this like a, uh, a Christmas joke? 
Who is this man? Well, um, we're on the co-op board together, Betty, and we fought side by side for garbage disposals, and every morning we exchange quasi-sexual witty banter, okay? Should I call the cops? I'm gonna call the cops. No, I'm gonna call the cops! You're scaring me! No, 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 no. Oh, thank you. Thank you for not calling the cops. Now, I'm going upstairs, we're gonna get some sleep, and then I'll be fine. Sleep you shall. Noblesse oblige isn't dead. Not yet, anyway. Let's, um, let's get you some help. Surely there's a shelter somewhere in the city. A shelter? Hey. Hey, are you, are you smacked out of your head? I'm the richest man in this building. I got twice the square footage you had, and I'm going upstairs. Take a walk, pal. Oh, not cool. Not cool! While we're shouting out to the filmmakers, I took this note fairly early. Shout out to Dante Spinotti, the cinematographer. There were some really beautiful shots in yeah. this movie, especially in the early, in the early like Wall Street stuff. You could tell he was really just like enjoying the geometry of the buildings. The two of them really sort of managed to create like this great sense of whimsy when they needed it. You know, it helped service those stranger moments. You know, those more supernatural moments, like with the Don Cheadle and with all this like body swapping stuff. Between the way it looks really nice and the way it's directed, I, it's really working for me it makes me wonder at this point like when he goes to the city like mike was saying and he goes to his apartment building and the doorman doesn't know him and mrs peterson doesn't know him the old woman he was flirting with in the <laughs> elevator and then he goes to his office building and the like the guy at the front desk doesn't know him like at what point do you realize like something has happened like i guess like one person might be having even like one person isn't gonna like completely forget you but like okay like maybe one person like something's in the water they're having a bad day whatever two people but like three people like well joey well, i mean <laughs> five people make a conspiracy so if you <laughs> ran it, i'm giving it at least five people i think the the, the conceit in these movies it's kind of like zombie movies and stuff that is that no other freaky friday movies exist so they have to they can't they don't have that cultural touchstone nick cage doesn't go after the third person oh shit i'm being freaky friday like uh yeah, yeah so. he's never like haven't you seen it's a wonderful life like, like it's seriously. happening <laughs> exactly yeah so any of us if it happened to us it would take like two people before we were like oh that guy saved from the thing he's doing that thing to me uh, okay yeah, uh, I met an angel <laughs> yeah I met an angel okay I see the angels are real and movies are correct and yeah it should have been yeah but uh, yeah I think that's the, the conceit this movie and probably every other Freaky Friday movie is acting upon is that these other movies don't exist whatever he was thinking whatever he was trying to discover he comes back after wasting an entire Christmas driving to the city not spending with his family for this family expecting normal poor cage I guess we have poor cage rich cage real cage fake cage <laughs> Not sure. But expecting poor Cage to be there had spent the entire night before putting together the daughter's bicycle. Like, it was going to be, like, a big day. I mean, Christmas is always great. For him to just up and leave, it, like, ruins their day, essentially. Yeah. And can I say, Taya Leone is the most forgiving wife. He makes... (laughs) He makes like six or seven divorce level fuck ups in this movie, and every morning he does something cute, and she completely forgives him. It's, it's bad feminist writing, I, I would say in that, in, that, in that case. But he also does have, toward the middle and the end of the movie, he does have Annie, the little six year old daughter, sort of giving him tips as to how to win her mom over. So I mean, like, right. he sort of has a little bit of help. But you're right, like she is the way that Cage is thinking all these people go crazy. Maybe she's just chalking it up to, oh, he just like had like some kind of existential crisis the walter white 
going to the supermarket and just stripping naked. Like it's just a mental problem. Like we're we're fine. We're going to move on. Yeah, they keep coming back to that. They keep he keeps uh, almost kind of talking about this the body switch coming to the precipice of that and then framing it as a psychotic break slash an existential crisis. Is that how he keeps cri- yeah framing it? Is it keeps being just like I just don't feel like I am myself, you know? And you're just like. <laughs> Because you're not. Like. <laughs> but you can't say that because then you'll be immediately locked away. And the whole movie, to a degree, is like this giant midlife crisis metaphor, right? Like, he's just having midlife crisis here. And so I think, to a degree, she's heard a little of this before, you know? He's probably made comments here or there. Oh, let's not have a third kid. Imagine, you know, what could have been if I went to London, this and that. It's like more of that at first for her, you know? It's like, oh, you missed Christmas. This is like the worst you've been acting so far, but I'm going to forgive him because it's the holidays and we need to get through the day and then it, it builds and builds until they start arguing full out at a mall one day and you know really have it out you're right to a degree she is very forgiving however i do feel like she's trying to figure him out as well like something's wrong with my husband i guess the idea is that it's been 12 years of perfect behavior and now he's suddenly acting <laughs> extremely screwy yeah it, it, I, I wish i could see more of i guess we see the videotapes i wish we could see more of alternate timeline cage just so i could just see just how perfect the guy is because i am a little more my interest is piqued by the bottle of scotch in his work drawer <laughs> those tapes were haunting like they're like these relics from a timeline that never existed you know i don't it was very strange strange scene but like very emotionally heavy too but yeah i don't know where that man went <laughs> it's, i imagine now like quantum leap where the guy's sedated in a waiting room somewhere you know with <laughs> looking after him what i kind of like about him coming back and sort of not only taylor forgiving him but just kind of getting acclimated to this life is that we see jeremy piven in a way that we haven't really seen jeremy piven in other stuff that he's kind of like this wise best friend who's kind of been a screw-up just like Cage is about to become, or like almost about to become, Mm. it's sort of like a weird iteration of the Cage advice. And I feel like a lot of this movie could fall into the Cage advice section. But here we sort of learn it's kind of like a weird, like it's alternate reality. It's poor Cage giving rich Cage the Cage advice through Jeremy Piven. Probably don't want to hear this right now. You remember last summer when I almost had that thing with Arnie Jr.'s speech therapist? You remember what you said to me? He said, don't screw up the best thing in your life just because you're a little unsure about who you are. Was the lady he was hooking up with in the beginning the same as, like, the sexy neighbor from the... I don't think so. That would have been great. I don't think so because he sees his business partners on television, you know, and, like, kind of starts freaking out. And he's like, that's my job, not his job. Like, (laughs) So (laughs) I think he's the only person out of place. That lady is a cougar, by all means, you know. She, <laughs> she's even wearing leopard print at one point in the movie and stuff. Right. While we're talking about ages, wait. So he has an internship in the beginning, which means, does that always mean you're college age? I mean, he is college age because he, I mean, he has diploma and he graduated in 1988 and it said 12 years and it takes place in 2000. So in the beginning, when he's at the airport, he's supposed to be in college and he looks 40. It's the strangest thing. Because we don't really spend too much time in 1987, they're just like, eh, it's okay. Like, we're only here for a minute. Like, we don't have to, like, dress him up too much. But he does look very similar, like, when he gets on that plane as to when he wakes up 12 years later. It was you a are very right confusing there. thing. I guess they didn't have the Benjamin Button technology yet. 
<laughs> they couldn't. Uh, they couldn't do that. I would have liked to see who do you cast as a young Nicolas Cage. Is, is a good question. Oh. oh well, we'll find out in Ghost Rider. We'll <laughs> find out Ghost Rider. <laughs> I guess I don't have an encyclopedic enough knowledge of the current teenage hunks to properly answer this question. That I well, you don't even need like the current teenage hunks. You need the teenage hunks <laughs> from two thousand. So it's it's all very strange. Oh, yeah. What I like about this movie, in terms of like, it's a convention that a lot of these kind of body switch movies happens is that he's thrust into this party. Like, mm-hmm. he basically wants to skip the party because, of course, he knows nobody and is, doesn't like this life and wants to get back to what he was. Mm-hmm. But when his alternative is to watch the kids or go to the party, he's like, I'll go to the party. <laughs> and so he, he's thrust to the social situation where he doesn't know anybody's name and he's forced to talk to everyone. Like, he sort of seems... It's not like he's the center of attention, but he, he's the kind of guy who knows everybody and has, like, a real sort of honest one-on-one relationship. Kind of like a salesman relationship, right? And he's just completely lacking in this experience and just forced to talk to them about who knows what. Like, he has to be ready for everything. He has to be ready for that when that woman, Evelyn, throws herself at him. He needs to be able to know that he actually is a Nets fan, that he doesn't think the Nets suck. Like, (laughs) all these, like, little intricacies, and he just knows none of them. That's kind of like a hackneyed thing that comes back, or that they go to in a lot of movies, but I thought it was kind of funny here... That maybe just because it's Cage, but like he kind of does a good job of bumbling his way through that scene. Yeah, I, I feel like I feel like what little I know about Nick Cage is that he does seem to do fish out of water extremely well. It, it almost seems to be his kind of uh, his his forte, his his uh, his calling card. I think in Face Off we get a different sort of intensity of fish out of you know that's more action fish out of water and this is more comedy fish out of water (laughs) yeah i agree you know when he sort of needs to figure out his situation yeah he shines through a little bit more in those types of situations and and i love this party because we find out that what he's like an expert bowler like he's great (laughs) at bowling he just he's like one of the guys you know he's like the coolest guy in his little crew (laughs) like uh it's just so funny how he's got to step into you know, it's just very overwhelming. Well, I think what's so what's so uh, compelling about this whole scenario that it gets played out so often is it's the actor's nightmare. It's, it's the you've been rehearsing for this play for ten years and you find yourself dropped into it, and everyone's telling you you've been doing great in rehearsals and it's opening night, and you find yourself out there without the lines, and that's absolutely what's happening in this movie and any sort of these what did you call it consciousness swap movies, especially when time is involved. The only person in his life that's willing to go along with this kind of ignorance is his six-year-old daughter, Annie. Yeah. And she, they have this like really genuinely charming and sweet interaction. He's tasked to change the baby's diaper, and she's like helping him out. And she just says to him, point blank, she's like, you're not my dad, are you? Like, where, what did you do with my dad? You're not going to hurt us, right? By the end of this, like, minute-long conversation, she's, like, totally okay with this stranger being in her house. And she even tells him that the aliens in the mothership did a good job. She actually like, says, welcome to Earth, which is my favorite <laughs> thing. And she does not give a crap about where her actual dad is. <laughs> she just could not care less. You're not really my dad, are you? No, I'm not. I work on Wall Street, you know, with the big buildings. And I live in an apartment with a doorman, and I can buy almost anything I want. This isn't my life. It's it's just a glimpse. Where was my real dad? I don't know. But don't worry. He loves you, and I'm sure he'll be back very soon. They did a pretty good job. Who did? The aliens. In the meadow ship. He looks just like him. Thanks. Slightly better looking though, right? 
Oh, oh no, you're not gonna start crying, are you? I, I don't think I could really deal with that right now. Do you like kids? On a case-by-case -case basis. Do you know how to make chocolate milk? I think I could figure it out. Promise you won't connect me and my bottle and plant stuff in our brains? Sure. Joey, what I like about this scene with the little girl is how we sort of mentioned last time on Gone in 60 Seconds where we finally got to see him interact with some children. That sort of hasn't really been prevalent in Cage Club. Uh, he'll, he'll also have a really great relationship with his daughter in Kick-Ass, you know. So this is just like a little glimpse of how well he, you know, acts with kids. Like he's got like that sort of, you know, childlike wonder to him that a kid has, you know. You could kind of see it in his eyes. Like he's willing to treat this child actor with so much respect and, and it, the scene just comes across very beautifully. I kind of wish we had more of the two of them interacting. Like, I almost wish it was kind of like a buddy cop situation. Like, I wish that she had to teach him more to do. She tells him how to change the diaper. She helps him get to the, the daycare to drop off the little baby brother, drop her off at school, and then tells him where to go to work. And we don't really get more of that. That I wish that they had more time where she could teach him the ways of this world. Like, <laughs> right. If this is like an alien in her house, teach him how to be a human and sort of masquerade as her dad. So if if we're going with a virtual reality hypothesis, I just came up with, I'm starting to come up with something and I'm realizing all of, of the, the, the daughter's strange behavior in terms of not caring whether her father comes home, being very welcoming of this alien to Earth, it starts to make a lot of sense when you think about the bell that Don Cheadle gives him in the beginning. He gives uh, Nick Cage this bell. What it is, it's an opening for a relationship with his daughter, who is his guide through this new life. It, it's almost as if this daughter is Don Cheadle in daughter form. That's really interesting because, you know, like you've been wondering what happened to Alternate Cage, uh, what happened to this little girl when this universe collapses at the end of the film? Like, I shudder <laughs> to think that, you know, she'll never exist. I have much more solace believing that maybe it is Cheadle in disguise, you know, sort of as this hidden guy watching him along the way. What I like about whether it's the daughter giving him purpose in this world or if it's Don Cheadle pulling the strings behind the scenes or just him going through his daily life, this is sort of when he begins to really kind of love this life, and he realizes how beautiful Taylioni is. They're about to compromise one another. He, like, looks at her, he's like, wow, you're so beautiful. And there's kind of a corny line, but it also works so perfectly in here, where she's just like, how do you do that? Like, how do you look at me with the same eyes for 13 years and still see something new? Well, I mean, he's never really looked at you like this, but I mean, <laughs> hey, whatever. He's still not fully on board with this life, but he kind of picks up pieces here and there. Hey, this life isn't so bad because I have this beautiful wife. I have these kids. I'm loved. I'm respected in this community. I don't have like a great job, but I have a job that I'm good at. It's sort of coming together and like he starts making fun of poor Cage. It slowly transitions to this world where, hey, like not only am I okay with this, but like this is kind of the life that I want, that I prefer. Can we talk about the chocolate cake scene? Because I know it spawned a meme. Have you seen the meme? No. It got, like, auto-tuned into a song, I believe. <laughs> that was one of my big intros. Sarah, the girl I was dating at the time, introduced it to me. And I was like, all right, this is the movie that shows Cage. It's Cagiest. <laughs> uh, this is going to be something I can make fun of, like, insanely. And I was wrong. The chocolate cake scene is Cage at his Cagiest, I feel like. The, the, the scene where he goes from being, like, officious and being the same dickhead he's been being so far... 
uh, in terms of just like, no, this is my chocolate cake, and I'm uh, I'm a rich man who gets what he wants, to turning it into a game at a point that is really hard to pin down. Actually, it, it turns from him like actually being mad at Taylioni to him actually like loving playing with her in this seamless way that is kind of mesmerizing to watch. And then it all comes crashing down. Like, he's so good with her in terms of exactly the kind of thing it seems like that poor Cage would do. They don't necessarily have all the money in the world, but they have each other, and so they're able to... Like, they can just play off one another. And then they're about to compromise on the stairs, and she's like, tell me that thing that you always like to tell me. And he's like, oh, baby, you make me so hot. And she's like, what? You <laughs> gross. Like, he's so close. And, like, this is sort of him transitioning into this life, but, like, he still he doesn't have all the pieces I, I don't know. I mean, I guess if you're expecting one thing and they give you something completely different. No, yeah. But see, she gets she gets so offended. It wouldn't be a just, bad like, thing for him off. to say in the middle of sex or at any other moment. But he was at, she was at prompting for a very specific line. He, he did not give it. <laughs> yeah, it seemed like she was setting him up. It was like a code, right? Like they do this. This is part of their routine when they get lost in the moment. He fumbles. <laughs> he totally. What was the line? The line was just like "I love you," right? It was like it was just like "I." Love love you and I've always loved you. They, they, they kind of get at it later. I don't know. I don't know if they ever necessarily say it. I mean, the big line toward the end of the movie is I choose us, and she gives him that big speech to him, and he gives it back to her at the end. I don't know if we ever necessarily know. It might just be some kind of, like, nickname or something, but what we know for sure is that it's not, oh, baby, you make me so hot. <laughs> that, that is not what turns her that's on. Not a, that's not a, a special line for couples. That, that's, <laughs> that's, a, that's a special line for anybody having sex, basically. Before they get to that chocolate cake scene, though, they have their first real fight. We were saying earlier that Taylioni gets mad at him when he leaves for the day, but he comes back and she kind of forgives him. But they're having this big fight, and he says to her, maybe I'm not the man you married. So Several times in this movie, he like tries to open up and say things aren't what they seem, but it's almost like he doesn't have the word to describe what's happening. Or maybe in this alternate reality, Cheadle kind of takes that ability away from him. Do you have any idea what my life is like? Excuse me? I wake up in the morning covered in dog saliva. I drop the kids off, spend eight hours selling tires retail. Retail cane. I pick the kids up walk the dog, which, by the way, carries the added bonus of carting away her monstrous crap. I play with the kids, take out the garbage, get six hours of sleep if I'm lucky, and then everything starts all over again. So, so what's in it for me? Where, where are my, my Mary Janes? You know, it's sad to hear that your life is such a disappointment to you. I can't believe it isn't a disappointment to you. Jesus, Kate, I could have been a thousand times the man I became. I could have been one of the richest Forbes. How could you do this to me? How could you let me give up on my dreams like this? Really, I want to know. Who are you? All right, look, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I was such a saint before and I'm, I'm such a prick now. But maybe I'm just not... The same guy that I was when we got married. This is sort of like when he lays it all out. It's like a huge, I guess one of those things that Zach was saying, like, this is almost like a divorceable moment. Like, Mm -hmm. basically, I don't love you anymore. I don't know if I've ever (laughs) loved you. 
I don't know what this is. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, I guess once again, it comes down to the fact that in this universe, Freaky Friday doesn't exist. He doesn't have the language to describe what's <laughs> happening to him. It's never happened in cinema. No one's had the imagination to describe what's happening to Nick Cage in this moment. So all he can just say is fumble at just, but, but also more realistically, he knows that the only thing that could possibly result in anything positive would be just him saying something about the way he psychologically feels. What I kind of like about this moment, too, it's like the midpoint here, and, and Cage lays out his day, and he's like, every day I wake up, and, you know, it's the kids, it's work, it's go home, you know, six hours of sleep, and then do it all again. And she's like, yeah, isn't that great? Like, isn't that what we strived for? And he's like, this isn't what I want. And <laughs> it gives us a nice, clear sort of moment where we see where both of them stand. He's starting to see how could someone just want so little in their life and be so happy with it and she's like you know who needs more than this right like this is all it takes i think it's important that it happens that late in the movie because it's the start that's the time i started to realize that this wasn't going to end with him getting to stay in the glimpse it was going to end with him going back to new york and calling or meeting up with kate i i I, that was when i was like oh you know he's still it's no matter how much he likes this life he still has a daughter that he didn't see the first five years of her life. It, it still would be a really fucked up situation to just settle down and shack up in. He sees that, that that family life is the most rewarding thing possible, but he still probably needs to do it his own way. He's been he's been inundated with richess his, his past 12 years, and he can't possibly, you know, really give that up 100%. He's still being an asshole to her. I started to realize, like, okay, the only real satisfying way this movie can end is that he goes back to his old life and calls her, and they're not going to leave that phone call hanging, and he's going to make it happen. And and so that was kind of like a turning point for me, even as I was a little bit cynical about how much of a dick he was being to her. There's a real sort of ebb and flow. Unlike a lot of the relationships we've seen in Cage Club movies, at least in the, in the recent past, it feels like a real relationship. They have like this fight, and he sort of goes out, and he goes on that bowling night, and Evelyn is there, and he basically decides then and there that he's going to screw up this guy's life He's going to have an affair with Evelyn because to him, Evelyn's the kind of girl that he's into. Jeremy Piven again sort of talks him out of it. And then he comes home and there's the cake scene. And it's sort of like they start at their lowest point and then they come up. They're close to this thriving, healthy relationship. And then it seems like the next scene, they're at the mall, which he hates going to the mall. (laughs) He's just miserable again and he just wants to buy this suit. And it's way out of their price range. It's the kind of clothes that remind him of his rich life. They start low, and then they crest up for that chocolate cake scene, and then everything comes crashing back down. Mm-hmm. It feels, I mean, it's all sort of compressed, but it's, it feels sort of natural and real. That, that it's not all good things. It's not, you know, an hour and a half of him in this life, and everything is roses. Like, he deals with the bad stuff, too, and he, in the end, that makes his decision to want to prefer this life that much more meaningful. His character charts, you know, he's not just going up the whole time. He's going up and down and up and down. Like, he, as soon as he starts to sort of get used to this new life, he is reminded of how much he loves his old life, you know? And then he sort of has to start all over again in a way and get used to his new life again. And as soon as that happens, like, he slips up and re- is reminded of his old life again. And, and so it's, it's like constantly being torn back and forth. And it's just, it's good drama. Yeah, it's the best drama. I love this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's necessarily true that there's like ups and downs because it seems like, at least in terms of my notes, in terms of the big events in the movie, a lot of it is down. They have a big fight at the mall and then like it seems like he wakes up and it's their anniversary and he forgot it. 
I guess it sort of crests back up, right? And they go on that really cute date, and then he takes her to the city and kind of gives her the night that he would give any woman in the city as Rich Cage. And they have that great night, but then it all comes crashing down when he sort of wants to return. He thinks he can have it all. Like, he thinks he can have this wonderful family life, but also have this really rich job, and goes back to his old office and sort of gets hired for some kind of unknown position. Again, just sort of proves, like, if you're committed to this life, like, you have to be committed to this life. You can't have what you had and also have this. It's like, it's one or the other. Which seems to me so false. I don't know. Like, I guess he and Taya have this 12-year relationship as lower middle class people in Jersey. It, it, it's, it's so interesting to me that I moved around as a, a lot as a kid, and so moving is such, like, a small thing to me. So, like, the fact that Taya is not willing to move to the city and, like, wants to live in this house forever did bother me a little bit. I was just like, come on. He's, he's, he's going to get you to a great a great private school in the awesome neighborhood in the city. I'm, I'm such a... Yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a New York snob. That's who I am. So was a, there was a bit of it that I was just like, all right, I have to put myself in the shoes of somebody who's not been cool with moving so much. Most people, I guess. Well, like, you sort of have to put yourself in her shoes, right? That if, you're, if you've been married to this guy for 12 years, you have to wonder that, like... I mean, he even says it at the end. Like, they probably like, scraped together their pennies to put the down payment on this house... He says to her at the very, very end to real Kate, current reality, where they're not together, Kate, in 122 more payments, like, we'll own this house. Mm. They have a mortgage, like, they have bills to pay. It's this life where it's not much, but, like, they earned it and they got it together and they've lived in this house and her kids are going to these schools and they have friends and she's got friends. It's a lot to ask, I think. Like, in terms of young people, you know, like you or me or whoever... You're able to move around a little bit more freely, but if you have the family, you have the roots laid down, I can totally see why she doesn't want to move to this life, even if the life is one more of luxury, that she wouldn't have to have this job that she doesn't necessarily like. She She's content with what she has, I think. And that's part of what made this movie so brilliant to me, was this, this nod to the realities of how we adapt and grow as humans, that he'd been 12 years as a, as a rich guy in Manhattan, and that's really hard to get over. And she'd been 12 years as a lower middle class person in Jersey, and she can't really get over that. And they all have these lives built up, and nothing can be swapped that, that drastically. So the compromise here is that he comes back to New York reality, finds the rich version of Kate, they both live in Manhattan together, or Paris. I'm not, just, I'm not sure where that coffee date leads. And it does turn out really well for both of them. It does kind of muddy the moral a little bit, because he doesn't give anything up. He goes back to being rich. He might give up his job. I guess he gives up the big, the big account, but he's probably going to do fine economically, and she's probably going to do fine economically, and they'll live somewhere fancy. But They get true love and economic success, but I guess that's the real thing that, that he gets for being nice to everybody all the time. The one thing I kind of found interesting about the corporate life that Cage gave up is with one of his, like, partners, you know, he's got, like, that partner who tells him off, right? And he's like, I love you. You should have been more assertive in the alternate universe. We see, you know, he's, like, the president when Cage should be president. And when he goes for the job interview, his office looks like part of it is, like, a nursery. And you could tell he's got children and a wife. So, like, this guy made it work. The signs were all around Cage at the time. Like, he could have had both worlds, you know, back in the day if he had just thought about it maybe or just tried to make 
tried to make it work, but he just seems so one track. It's not that he has to choose one or the other. It's like he can't see past that choice, right? Like he can only see one or the other. He doesn't understand what it means to merge that and to make it work. So it was just kind of interesting that this guy represented, you know, everything that like he kind of could have been. Uh, yeah, it, is, it does kind of almost, it, it expects you to expect a certain dichotomy and it, it, it negates it. It's sort of at this point where he sees like the possibilities and he thinks, I mean, I don't know if he realizes in the movie that he could sort of have it all, but he sees like the potential of what this family life could be with him at this job. But then Taylor delivers her I choose us speech and this kind of seals the deal. This is like a huge moment. This is her putting all the cards on the table be like, look, I could have done this, I could have done this, we could have done this, we could have done that. In the end, like, we chose this life, and, like, no matter what happens, like, I choose us. If you need this, Jack, if you really need this, I will take these kids from a life they love, and I'll take myself from the only home we've ever shared together, and I'll move wherever you need to go. I'll do that because I love you. I love you. And that's more important to me than our address. I choose us. And it's like this really kind of powerful, like, kick-ass moment where she's like, could I be happier? Would I prefer to not have a kid and sort of be able to have fancy dinners in New York? Like, yeah, maybe sometimes. This is the life I chose, and, like, this is the only life that I want. It makes Cage realize that this is the life he wants, too. He sort of runs into Don Cheadle, right? Like, he goes to that convenience store that he's just looking to buy salt, and he's behind the counter, and it's sort of like, this is the end of everything. That he's like, I can't go back. I can't give this up. Like, this is the life that I I never knew I wanted, but this is the only life that I want to have from here on out. You. Jack! What's up? How you feel, baby? Why are you here? Is that rock salt? Look at you, man. Went and got all domestic and everything. You really figured some things out, huh? I'm not going back. You understand me? Okay, relax, Jack. You can't do this. You can't keep coming in and out of people's lives, messing things up. It's not right. A glimpse, by definition, is an impermanent thing, Jack. I've got kids. I'm going home. Can I ask what happened to the convenience store cashier when Don Cheadle took his place? <laughs> I don't know. I, it's just, I, it's lots of weird consciousness body swaps. Or maybe there's a lot of Don Cheadles. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, um, I just would like to say, you know, that is a very powerful speech that Taylor gives. She's making a very strong point. Like, Jack isn't the only one who gave everything up. We find out when they go back to reality, Taylor was an extremely successful lawyer. And in this reality, she gave everything up to be like this nonprofit lawyer and raise children and do all this stuff you know so i don't know i think that helps cage realize you know he's been selfish and that is like not a good attribute that he wants to have in his life and it helps him open up to this you know family world can i ask one more question and i was it was late and i had come off a very exhausting gig and uh and so i may not have picked up everything he lets the dog go at the end wait i don't know what that is what was that I don't know. I tried to watch a deleted scene that says extended dog walk, but my DVD <laughs> was not was not allowing me. It's been on the fritz tonight. Okay, so Mike, what you have to do is, by the time you repost reviews, you need to watch that scene and report back, because I want to know, I know Zach wants to know, 
and people who listen to the podcast can then go to cageclub.me, yeah. read your review, and find out what happens to that dog. I, okay. I have one other question also, and that was that – oh, not another question. It was just an observation that I thought was actually a really nice thing by the filmmakers. When they're watching the VHS, he makes a joke about not knowing who other people are. He makes it – you watch it again. He makes a joke to somebody and be like, who are you, or something like that. <laughs> and, and I'm like, oh, crap, that's why they don't realize anything's amiss with him when he drops in because he's always asking who people are. Uh, it's like a That's pretty joke awesome. that he makes, um, <laughs> apparently. Uh, it's just like part of his sense of humor. So they really like threw that in there. And I really, I mean, when you make a movie, you spend a lot of time on it. They probably they probably thought about that and were just like, we're going stick, to stick this in. I, I thought that was amazing. And I, that was like the moment this went from being like pretty good to being like actually like a really <laughs> thought out movie that I was just like really happy with. And so after he meets with Don Cheadle in this convenience store, he goes back and knows that it was sleep that brought him into this world, so he figures that it's going to be sleep that takes him out of it, and so he's trying so hard. He's trying so hard, like his eyelids are so heavy, he's trying to stay awake, because he doesn't want to give it up, and he wakes up, and it's Christmas morning, like it's like no time has passed at all, and he opens the door in his apartment, and that woman from the beginning of the movie's there, ready to compromise him again. He's like, <laughs> no, I don't want this, and he goes and finds Kate, and the only reason, like, it's heartbreaking. The only reason she was calling him and leaving him a voicemail was because she is moving the parish, she's giving everything up, and she's got a box of his stuff lying around. Mm. You know that it's not going to be that easy for him, that he just has his life with her. He's not just going to get her in his life. But it still, like, breaks you down. That's just, like, it's exactly who he wants. It's exactly where he wants to be. Like, he can maybe kind of have both of these lives. And she's just like, oh, yeah, like, here's some stuff. Here's some things you left around. It's, it's a little heartbreaking. You can see New York Taylor Leone has just a little bit more dead in the eyes. She's a little bit more burnt out by New York than, than opera singing Nick Cage is. And he's just coming down off of this incredible high of this whole family life, too. And it's just like reality checks slapped right in the face. You know, he's not going to handle this very well. <laughs> he goes back to his office, and he's as out of place here as he was in the other life. And he's just like, hey, like, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go to Aspen, just like I said. But then on the way to the airport, he decides to, instead of going to Aspen, he's going to win her back over. And so... But he goes to the goes airport. And, he, goes to, he goes to the airport. Which is he weird. He goes to the airport. He tells the, he tells the limo driver not to go to the airport. <laughs> but then he goes to the airport. <laughs> Different yeah, airport. He's like, you're, Different airport. You're, you're gonna, maybe it was oh, LaGuardia. Airport. <laughs> New York jokes. <laughs> and he gives her the I Choose Us speech. After 13 years of marriage, we're still unbelievably in love. You won't even let me touch you till I've said it. I sing to you. Not all the time, but, but definitely on special occasions. You know, we've, we've dealt with our share of surprises and, and, and made a lot of sacrifices, but we stayed together. You see, you're a better person than I am. And it made me a better person to be around you. I don't know, maybe... Maybe it was all just a dream. Maybe I, I went to bed one lonely night in December and I, I imagined it all, but I swear, nothing's ever felt more real. And if you get on that plane right now, it'll disappear forever. I know we could both go on with our lives and we'd both be fine, but I've seen we can be like together and I choose us we cut to them in a coffee shop as we zoom out like we don't know what they're talking about 
we know that in some reality they work well together, and we just have to hope that this reality sort of follows that other one too. You know, they might not have Annie, but they'll have their own version of Annie, and they'll have their own love and their own story, and they will be able to have each other, and he will be able to become the family man. You have to end on that. You you cut (laughs) everything after you said the family man. So there's a couple things real quick I want to mention about the movie main characters are Jack and Kate, which I lost my mind when I, speaking of lost, lost my mind oh. when I realized <laughs> um, Matthew Fox, Evangeline Lilly, yep. were Jack and Kate on there, so yep. crazy. Too many coincidences because, like, the Flash Sideways universe and this universe <laughs> are very similar. You know, the guy who played Miles, the psychic, was the convenience store clerk, so he's existing in multiple realities. It's very awesome. The other thing I wanted to mention was that in this movie, when they're in a compromising situation, Chris Isaac's Wicked City comes on, or as the subtitles describe it, Romantic Song Plays. <laughs> and it's the second movie so far that this song has played in. It was in Wild at Heart. I was like, this song's really Lynchian. Like, I wonder what it's from. And then I remember it was Wild at Heart. And then it's going to come back again in Matchstick Men. It's weird that, like, this one song, kind of like an iconic song, is in three movies that we're going to watch in the span of, you know, 15 years in Cage's career. Like, it just, it's it's cool and it's weird. And that's the point of Cage Nections. It's a beautiful thing. By, by the things you've described about, about Cage movies, I'm starting to wonder if, like, he won't take a movie unless it connects to the previous movie he made in some way. <laughs> it's very possible because there are a lot of Cage Nections. So, Zach, thank you very much for being here. This was great, and I hope you do come back. I'd love to. That was The Family Man. For all things Cage Club, you can go to cageclub.me. You can read our reviews, find past podcasts, follow us on Twitter, subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. All your Nicholas Cage needs over at cageclub.me. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. And that was Zach Dazan, and we will see you next time on Cage Club. Cage Club.